Hi, I'm Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. The recording you're about to listen to is entitled Nepal in Transition, Mapping the Successes and Failures of the Peace Process. It was presented by Dr Jasmine Westendorf from La Trobe University at the Melbourne South Asian Studies Group Seminar on the 28th of August. The talk explores the peace process that is in place in Nepal that brought to an end a 10-year conflict between government and Maoist forces in 2006. The research was funded by La Trobe Asia Research Grant. Uh, it's exciting to be able to uh, talk about this research for the first time. I uh, started this project late last year uh, and I travelled to Nepal in November, December last year to do interviews. So this is really a first, uh, the first time I've been presenting this research. I'm very much looking forward to the discussion and hearing your uh, perspectives on it. So my interests are around peace processes uh, and civil wars and particularly my research looks at why it is that so many peace processes don't actually result in stable peace but rather either um, there is a relapse into civil war within a fairly short time frame, or what's actually more common, that there are these deeply unstable situations that aren't really war, but they're also not quite peace, where, there's, where societies are characterised by widespread insecurity, low-level violence, criminality, political instability, and a sense that given the right triggers, things could go badly quite quickly. So <clears throat> what I'm interested in is why it is that the same sorts of problems are arising across a really diverse range of countries that the international community is trying to support peace building in. Uh, and what my previous project did, which is uh, the, the, the book that's just been published, is I looked at conflicts across Africa, Asia and the Pacific uh, to try and dig into that question of why the same problems are recurring. And one of the big uh, issues that I found was that the, the responses in terms of building peace tend to be quite technocratic. The international community tends to have a fairly standard model or a template for building peace in the aftermath of a peace settlement. Um, and that template tends to be, it tends to revolve around three areas. Governance building, so writing constitutions, holding elections, reconstituting uh, governance and government systems. It revolves around security, so disarming, demobilising, reintegrating soldiers, uh, supporting security sector reform, and then it also revolves around transitional justice processes, truth and reconciliation commissions, war crimes tribunals, um, or other efforts to strengthen um, domestic legal processes so that people can be held accountable for the crimes that were committed during wars. That the, the problem with that template is that it is, firstly, it's very broad. It's a very broad prescription for what needs to happen in the aftermath of a violent civil war to get a country to the point that people no longer are killing each other in the streets. And beyond that point, to the, to the point that they're actually living in harmony or in some sort of um, stable, non-violent system. Uh, it is also in itself the, sort of a lot of the source of a lot of conflict because it tends, in a lot of the cases that I looked at, to depoliticize the peace process, to focus on those technocratic solutions to rebuilding a state at the expense of actually looking at why individuals and groups continue to make choices around violence and around the use of violence. So this is what brought me to Nepal because it was a very different sort of peace process. Rather than being a large, um, sort of heavy footprint peace operation, it was the opposite. It was a narrow, focused mission with a very limited number of peacekeepers and it was driven by local actors pretty much the entire way through. So it's a complete flip of the, the dominant model of peacemaking. Um, and what I wanted to do is investigate what the outcomes have been and whether that particular model of peacekeeping um, and peace building has actually been more effective in Nepal uh, because it avoids the sort of pitfalls of the, the large heavy missions. Uh, what I'm gonna do today is start by looking at the history of Nepal really briefly and the history of the conflict and look at the way the peace process actually progressed. And then I'm going to look at three main challenges um, which revolve around disarmament, demobilisation, reintegration issues, um, the Constitutional Assembly and the, uh, the writing and the passing of a constitution, and then transitional justice. Um, and what I, I hope will become clear through this is some of the larger trends that are certainly not just, that, that can help us understand why, um, why the problems in Nepal still persist and why there is still such an inability 
um, to promulgate a constitution and to address some of the deeply seated issues that have led to the war. So the civil war in Nepal began in 1996 um, when the Communist Party of Nepal, the Maoist branch, declared and launched a people's war, which lasted for 10 years um, and was quite devastating. It resulted in the deaths of more than 15,000 people uh, and the displacement of more than 100,000 people um, in addition to that. That war was the culmination really of six decades of internal political instability um, that centered around a struggle for peace, justice, and development and equality as well in the context of two failed democratization attempts um, and also the, the continued dominance of a really autocratic monarchy um, that maintained a hold over the country's politics. The war really reflected deep divisions. Um, and I think it's by looking at the way these divisions are rooted in Nepal's history uh, that we can come to see why it's been so difficult uh, for some of the central challenges of the peace process to be resolved. Um, I think that both the war and the peace process highlight the existence of a very violent and very conflictual political culture um, that's characterised Nepal's governance since the country's inception. So um, Nepal is a fairly young country um, in comparison to some. Uh, until 1744, the area that's actually now Nepal was just a, a collection of principalities and kingdoms. Um, that shifted uh, in 1744 when the ruler of the Gorkha uh, region um, which was actually one of the smallest and more impoverished regions at the time, uh, began an expansionist war and ended up actually uh, taking control of an area that's now twice the size of current day Nepal. So a very quick expansionist war, um, which put him into direct conflict with the, India, uh, the English East India Company. Uh, and in 1814, there was a brief war between the English uh, East India Company um, and the, uh, the Gorkha empire which pushed that empire back into its current borders and that's how Nepal came to look the way it does today. In the aftermath of that war, the political system was in a state of constant flux for about 30 years, um, <clears throat> which revolved around internal court rivalries for the, for the most part um, and intrigues. And I think it's these intrigues which again give us one of the themes of Nepal's political history. Um, they lasted until uh, 1846, when a general took control by massacring all of the opposition um, and reducing the Shah King to a figurehead and establishing a system of uh, a prime minister's office or a prime minister's role that was always in the hands of the Rana um, family. During the following decades, um, there was a fairly stable rule by that Rana uh, family and the leaders created a unified kingdom, but certainly not a unified state because what they did is pursue policies and um, they adopted uh, laws that basically divided the country up into uh, fairly clear groups of the governed and then the governors. Uh, so for instance, uh, they made Hinduism the official religion and Nepali the official language of the country and they adopted a civil code which in imposed the Hindu caste system into the country. Uh, by adopting those rules, they basically consolidated the power of the high caste uh, Bahun and Chetris in the country and marginalised all the other groups and institutionalised the gap between um, those two groups. Um, the powerful elite were largely based in the Kathmandu Valley and that is still the case today. Uh, the rest of the population actually made up about 70% of the population. So it was a, a very large proportion that was marginalised by this system. That shifted significantly around the, um, the mid 20th century. In 1951, the Indian PM, Prime Minister, sorry, uh, negotiated and well, mediated an agreement between the king, who had had just the figurehead role up until that point, um, the Rana rulers, and the Nepali Congress Party um, to end the autocratic rule of, uh, that, that had held for the last 104 years. Um, and they established a multi-party democratic system. And it was in the context, I think, of a larger push globally towards democratization in the um, context of decolonization. Uh, the next few years were quite chaotic. Um, and when elections were held uh, eight years later in 1959, the elections passed fairly well, um, but uh, the new democratic system was upturned within a year by the king who used the opportunity to wrest power back um, and to, uh, he said that at that point democracy was not suited to Nepal or perhaps Nepal wasn't suited to democracy 
in the sense that it had been instituted and he wanted to institute and he instituted a form of democracy based on local village councils or panchayats. And that's what then characterised the next um, three decades up until the 90s with this panchayat system. Um, power was centralised in the palace during those years uh, and policies that he pursued pretty much made political opposition impossible. Um, political leadership was arrested, political parties were banned during that time. Uh, any social or political movements were stifled quite um, heavy-handedly. Uh, and the movements of the marginalised groups, so the Dalitsi, the former untouchable castes, um, and the Janjadis and Madeshis uh, were particularly um, repressed during that period. The increasing autocracy of that regime led to a popular uprising in 1991, the Jan Underland or the People's Movement, uh, which led to the second uh, experiment with democracy. Um, and it was during that People's Movement that the, the Nepali Congress Party joined with a coalition of communist and leftist parties to challenge the um, Panchayat system and to call for the re-establishment of a multi-party democracy. It's really important to note here that the uh, Janjadi and Madeshis, who were the most marginalised ethnic groups uh, in Nepal, were the first to marginal—sorry, uh, the first to mobilise in the lead up to that revolution, that people's movement, and that was because they had this—they um, were working on the basis of a political consciousness that had already been developed amongst those groups um, and clandestine uh, organising that had happened even under the oppressive rule uh, since the uh, since 1960. The success of the people's movement um, didn't lead to a success in democracy in Nepal. Uh, the following years were characterised by very short-lived governments um, with politicians drawing and then redrawing at party lines um, and realigning with other groups and making power-sharing arrangements that never held uh, for very long. Um, power swung during that period between the groups who were more pro-monarchy and those that were more anti-monarchy and there was a big question over what the future of the monarchy or what role the monarchy ought to play um, in Nepali uh, society. Those years also coincided with the economic boom in Nepal and so each successive group of elites used their time in power to uh, enrich themselves and to consolidate their own power or their little kingdoms in Nepal. So there was an enormous amount of corruption. Uh, the public perception during that time was that politics was bad um, and a lot of the media around the time spoke about bad politics that the country had descended into, um, the personal rivalries between the leaders. None of that benefited any of the marginalised groups that, uh, that had been mobilised during the people's movement and that's one of the main reasons why or that pushed um, the Maoists to the point of declaring the people's war. So. Those groups and the majority of Nepalis were excluded from the benefits of the new democratic system and there was very little way for them to actually have their, um, their voices heard in the system because of the way uh, power was concentrated at the very high levels. Um, in addition to that, while some groups, particularly in the Kathmandu Valley, were becoming wealthier and were developing at a fairly rapid rate, um, their lives were not improving at all. Uh, and they were suffering quite severe economic hardships. So it, that was a fertile ground really for the Maoist movement to then mobilise those groups into the uh, People's War. So when the People's War was launched, uh, the Maoist party only had two guns, um, which is probably uh, the, f well, there are a lot of things that make this war um, and peace process quite unique from the other ones that I've studied, but that's certainly one of them. Um, there were two distinct stages in the war. The first stage was from 96 to 2000, um, in the early stages of the war when the Maoists were really just building up um, their capacity as a fighting force. And they, they fought state policy with very rudimentary weapons. Um, they expanded and strengthened the organisation during that period. And they developed structures and institutions of governance in the areas that they controlled that aligned with the, um, the ideology uh, that they were pursuing. Um, in terms of their military... Uh, campaign, they targeted mainly uh, leaders of the uh, ruling parties. They didn't take such issue with the monarchy at that point, which is quite interesting. Um, in 2000, the Prime Minister at the time actually negotiated, well, it started engaging in back-channel talks with the Maoists uh, because he thought that it was important to find some sort of negotiated solution to the problem. That was scuttled in 2001 with the Royal Massacre, which made headlines worldwide. Um, and in that massacre, the, the Crown Prince massacred his father, um, his mother and eight other family members, injured quite a lot of others. 
Uh, it's never been you know, known for certain what caused that massacre. Speculation is that it was because he was prevented from marrying his girlfriend. His mother and father wouldn't approve um, his choice of partner. But um, there was also speculation that this was part of a, a, a way for his uncle to take power because what ended up happening is that the crown prince was injured um, during that massacre, he became king because his father had died. He spent his three days as king in a hospital bed, unconscious. As soon as he died, his uncle um, became king and started pursuing, again, a, a process of gathering power back into the palace. Um, I think that that's a really important event in the history of Nepal because I think it demonstrates or it really highlights how... Um, Political contestation has happened violently in the history of Nepal. There's actually only been two instances where power has changed hands peacefully in the history of Nepal. The vast majority of power changes have involved um, quite severe violence and personalised violence in this, in this way, and it's been through intrigue and massacres um, that power has changed hands and rivalries between different parts of families. The Massacre in 2001 led to political turmoil, and that's probably fairly um, unsurprising given how much it did shock the national community. Uh, within a year, the new king had dismissed the prime minister and appointed a loyalist in his place. That didn't uh, last for very long, and within three years, he assumed executive powers, arrested all political leaders, um, and declared a state of emergency, which stifled all political and civil liberties. So this is the period that the second phase of the People's War um, took place in. Uh, in. During the state of emergency, a massive military offensive was launched against the Maoists and it was very heavy-handed and it was um, fought in a very indiscriminate way. So during that state of emergency, 4,300 people died. 80% um, of those were killed by the government. And of those that the government killed, it has been found that 40% were 40% of the Maoists they say they killed were actually innocent civilians. Um, and that was part of a deliberate campaign of targeting the, um, the areas or the villages that were seen to have sympathy for the Maoist movement. During that period, uh, both the Maoists and the government, I think, realised that absolute uh, military victory was not actually a realistic outcome of this war. It became quite clear that neither of them was going to win through military means. Um, the royal coup played an interesting role in creating a common enemy for the political parties in the Maoists, and that common enemy was the monarchy. Uh, and that helped the, a mutually hurting stalemate to come into existence. Essentially, the, it pushed the, the political parties to align um, and to form a coalition called the Seven Party Alliance. Um, and that coalition, that alliance, sought out the Maoists to try and negotiate some sort of understanding um, in order to then challenge the monarchy um, together. Uh, in 2006, the Maoists and the Seven Party Alliance signed an understanding which denounced auto the autocratic monarchy, um, and it led to another people's movement, another uprising in 2006, which unlike the one in 1991, which was largely driven by political parties, the 2006 people's movement was largely driven by people. Um, and it, I think it really reflects the way the Maoists, the People's War, had mobilised public opinion um, and politicised a lot of um, marginalised groups who hadn't necessarily uh, been politicised beforehand. This movement was incredibly inclusive. It was characterised by broad social participation and it took the form of 19 days of a nationwide um, protest which pushed the king to uh, concede that sovereignty rests with the people and to renounce executive power. I don't think there's actually another instance where a king has held a press conference resigning essentially from um, the position of executive power and handing back over uh, in that way in the context of a civil war. At that time, the prime minister and the parliament was reinstated, a ceasefire was declared, and the prime minister started negotiations um, with the Maoists, which moved very quickly because there had been this formation of some level of trust um, and some level of collaboration between the groups. That led to the signing of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement in 2006, right at the end in November um, 2006. And I think it was the convergence of all major parties around the peace agreement um, along with the broad social support for a solution to the conflict that's been one of the factors that's meant that the, the peace agreement has actually held 
um, there hasn't been a lot of internal resistance within Nepal to that peace agreement, which again is quite unlike a lot of other civil war contest, uh, conflicts, um, where groups within the country can be quite opposed and can work to undermine the peace agreement that's been reached. So the peace agreement was signed in, uh, in tandem with an agreement on monitoring the management of arms and armies, because that was really a central issue. How, were the Mao how was Nepal going to grapple with this issue of having two armies, the Maoist army um, and then the Nepal army who'd been fighting each other uh, quite brutally um, for the previous 10 years? There were five main areas that the Comprehensive Peace Agreement addressed. It established an interim constitution, interim legislature, and a power-sharing arrangement between the Maoists and the seven-party alliance, the political parties. Um, it established a framework for democratic elections um, and the formation of a constituent assembly, which would, in its first sitting, address the issue of the future of the monarchy, so basically decide what would happen with the monarchy. Um, Thirdly, uh, it outlined the dissolution of Maoist parallel state structures, so the structures they'd set up in the areas of their control, um, and it established a framework for transitional justice processes, and then probably most importantly, it set out a, a framework for the cantonment of the fighting forces, both the Maoists and the Nepali army, um, and their disarmament. It also included a pledge to ensure that the post-war system would be democratic, and inclusive of all communities and groups in Nepal by ending prevailing class, ethnic, linguistic, gender, cultural, religious, and re uh, regional discrimination. So it was a very aspirational, very transformative um, peace agreement. It wasn't just going for the basics that would be needed um, to get the parties to give up arms. It was actually aiming to establish a completely new form of um, political and social uh, and economic structures in Nepal. The agreement also included a bargain um, that the Maoists could retain their army during the elections, uh, which is almost unheard of in peace processes, uh, but that a number of constraints would be imposed on them during that uh, period, uh, and it would be imposed on both the Maoists and the Nepalese army um, to ensure that they didn't engage in violent actions and that they didn't um, break the ceasefire and disrupt the political process. During those negotiations, the international community and the UN played a very minor role. They were very much locally driven um, and they were led by the Prime Minister and the, um, the leaders of the Maoist movement. That relationship wasn't always easy. Uh, as soon as they'd signed the peace agreement, there was an understanding that they would request the United Nations to come in and monitor this process, particularly the security elements of the process. Uh, but the Prime Minister sent off a letter to the United Nations without first checking with Pratunda, who was the leader of the Maoists. Um, and he included in his request uh, the request that the UN oversee the decommissioning of all Maoist weapons, which was something that the Maoists hadn't agreed to um, and was in, uh, well, it ran contrary to what had been agreed in the Comprehensive Peace Agreement. So the seeds of distrust were, were there. Um, from the very start. Um, that led to the peace agreement almost collapsing um, and the Maoists certainly made a number of quite alarming statements about um, being pushed out of the process and being willing to go back um, to the, uh, well, how unacceptable this was if their participation in the process was going to be ongoing. Um, eventually, the Prime Minister and Pratunda met in private and they agreed to a new letter which didn't include a reference to decommissioning. Um, they didn't trust each other to send a joint letter, so they each sent an identical letter to the United Nations um, making this request. Up until that point, like I said, the UN hadn't played a major role, um, but it, it actually acted very quickly um, in response to this request. And in part that was because the uh, Ian Martin, who became the special representative of the Secretary General, to the peace process in Nepal, had been in Nepal as the head of the um, UN's human rights mission for quite a number of years, and he had quite good working relationships with the leaders and with a number of the other groups, powerful groups in the country. Uh, so he was immediately made the, um, the special representative to the peace process, and the UN mission was deployed uh, fairly quickly. It was, it, or it was passed by the Security Council fairly quickly. I think it's the fastest time that a Security Council that the Security Council has authorised a mission after being requested um, to consider it. Uh, so the United Nations mission to Nepal was supposed to be a focused mission of limited duration. That's what it was called in the uh, Security Council mission, uh, resolution. Um, and I think the reason I wanted to go into a bit of detail about these events is that I think they reflect two of the key themes in the peace process. Firstly, that it was the Nepali actors that 
set limits on how the international community was going to be involved in their peace process. Um, and secondly, uh, the relationship between the Seven Party Alliance and the Maoists was characterised by mistrust and antagonism despite their unity around the, um, their opposition to the monarchy and their unity in the, uh, the Jan Underland, the People's <coughs> Movement uh, in 2006. So the UN mission, um, just to give you a sense of what it actually, what it did, um, it departed from the standard template of peacekeeping operations. It was considered a designer mission. Um, there were no armed peacekeepers who were deployed uh, into Nepal, a very small contingent, just 186 unarmed retired military and police officers were deployed to monitor and oversee um, the cantonment of the Maoist forces um, and then the disarmament uh, of the Maoists and some of the Nepali army weapons. That limited mission was partly because of the limitations that the Nepali actors placed on the, um, the international community. Neither the Seven Party Alliance nor the Maoists wanted to see a big international presence in the country. Um, and that was in part because Nepal had been quite a big trip contributing country to other peacekeeping missions. And it didn't really sit right with the political leadership that all of a sudden the tables would be turned and they would become the recipients of peacekeepers rather than the contributors of peacekeepers. Another important factor was that neither India nor China actually wanted a big peacekeeping, armed peacekeeping mission in their region. Um, so they pushed very hard for a very limited mission to be deployed as well. The mandate of that mission was two things, monitoring the armed forces and assisting the country as it moved towards the election. This runs counter to peacekeeping best practice that had been developed in the years prior. There is no mention of peace building. Um, and there's really no political element to what they were doing. It was very much just a minimal monitoring force. Um, I think part of the reason why the UN was initially very reluctant to approve such a limited, man, uh, a limited mission, a light mission, was because the experiences uh, that had happened just prior to this in Rwanda, in the Balkans, in uh, quite a number of African states had suggested that actually the UN needs to send in bigger forces, better resourced forces, forces with more weapons. Um, because civil wars are dangerous and they need um, you know, larger interventions rather than smaller interventions. Um, Ian Martin, uh, the special rep, uh, played a major role in pushing this through the, uh, the approval of the Secretary General um, and getting it through the Department of Peacekeeping Operations uh, and finding a way to balance off the needs of the Nepali actors and then what the international community was willing to do. An interesting thing is that there were just some bureaucratic blocks to this. The UN doesn't know how to hire um, and deploy unarmed retired military officers. They actually didn't know how to do that at the time. They didn't have systems in place for it. And so on a bureaucratic level, there was quite a lot of consternation. Um, what they were used to doing was asking armies to second their soldiers into a peacekeeping mission, which is a much easier process for them. In any case, um, the mission had quite a number of successes. Uh, its presence deterred violence between the parties. Uh, it facilitated communications between the parties and it also facilitated a sense of joint responsibility for the process, which contributed to building confidence between the two parties. Um, it also actively facilitated and fostered national ownership of the process as the international community moved into Nepal. So there have been three major challenges that have undermined the consolidation of peace uh, in Nepal. Firstly, the disarmament, demobilisation, the security issues, then the constitutional assembly issues, and then the transitional justice. So I'll talk through them each in, uh, in order. One of the main ways that the UN mission uh, dealt with the disarmament, demobilisation of Maoist soldiers uh, was by setting up an arms monitoring office. Now that was an incredibly small office. It comprised 200 staff at its maximum um, and some of those were Nepali staff. They weren't all internationals. Uh, it relied on the cooperation of all belligerent parties, which is probably one of the biggest weaknesses of the mission. Um, it didn't have a lot of capacity to act if the parties were not consenting uh, to that action. So during that process, the Maoist uh, soldiers were confined to cantonment sites across the country. Um, they were only released two years ago, so they were in cantonment sites from 2006 up until 2012, which is a very long time. Um, in 2007, the UN mission screened and verified nearly 20,000 combatants from the Maoist army for their participation um, in the DDR program and they oversaw the storage of 3,000 weapons. So immediately there's quite an enormous gap between the number of soldiers and the number of weapons that were handed in. 
Um, the Nepali army was similarly confined to their barracks and they decommissioned an equal number of weapons um, into depots, but they weren't required to downsize, which again goes against common peacebuilding um, best practice, where the armies generally, after a civil war, um, they've been inflated to a point that, they, that their downsizing needs to be a part of the confidence building process and the restructuring. Um, that wasn't on the table because India insisted that the downsizing of the army not be on the table. Uh, and that was because India thought that if this peace process fails, if there was a return to war, the army was the only actor that India could work with to regain control um, of the situation or to settle the war. Once the weapons had been handed over by both the Maoists and the Nepal army, um, they were put in weapons caches, um, but the armies, each army held the keys to their weapons cache. The international community monitored those. There were electronic monitors on the, on the locks um, and they were stationed nearby, um, but that again runs counter to sort of common best practice in peacekeeping operations. Um, in addition to that side of things, the Arms Monitoring Office facilitated a joint monitoring coordination committee which included representatives from the UN, the Maoist and the Army. Um, that coordination committee was tasked with reviewing any complaints or violations of the uh, Comprehensive Peace Agreement. They also conducted village patrols that on the one hand patrolled the security situation but on the other hand made recommendations about um, development spending in each of those communities and part of what that served to do was actually demonstrate and show the villages in these areas that the army and the Maoists could work together, they were no longer enemies, they were actually um, participating collaboratively in this process. That process, the coordination committee, was largely effective. Um, it was the cantonments and the, uh, the monitoring of army's movements that was much less effective uh, in this process. So it became clear pretty much immediately after the initial registration of the Maoists um, that there were large anomalies in the number of Maoists that had been registered. Uh, within, between the first and second registration, um, nearly 9,000 uh, ex-combatants went missing. Um, some of those slipped out because they were late recruits, so they wouldn't have actually qualified for the reintegration packages. They joined right at the end of the war. Um, some of them are known to have slipped out to join a, um, a, a Maoist-aligned paramilitary at the time, the Young Communist League, which was not, it was still operating freely. Um, but a lot of them just didn't exist. Uh, and a video was leaked in 2009, um, which showed Prachanda speaking to Maoist soldiers in one of the cantonment camps, boasting um, that they'd really tricked the United Nations and that only, uh, that, that Maoist army only had seven to 8,000 soldiers in reality. So even by the end of the, this slippage, the UN still had about 19,000 on the books that they were paying the Maoists to maintain in the cantonment camps. Um, that money obviously didn't go to the soldiers and it was, uh, it was squirreled away um, and has been, I mean, we don't know where it's gone, there's no evidence of where it's gone, but certainly a number of Maoist leaders have become quite wealthy. Um, and there is suspicion that it was funneled into other elements of the campaign. Um, because the United Nations mission was so small, it just couldn't monitor the cantonments effectively and it couldn't monitor the movement of the soldiers um, in the cantonments either. So there were instances where Maoist soldiers did leave and carry out acts of violence, including once when they um, went out kidnapped a businessman, a very prominent businessman, took him back into the cantonment and murdered him um, and then publicised that, uh, which was a real source of, uh, of conflict because it led the political parties, the Seven Party Alliance, to call the UN um, uh, impartial. They said the UN's on the Mao's side, they're not effectively monitoring them, they're doing this deliberately. I think, as a matter of fact, the UN didn't have the capacity to do that sort of monitoring with just a couple of hundred um, uh, unarmed monitors. The next major problem with this process was around reintegration. Um, in most peace processes, quite a number of ex-combatants from the rebel groups are absorbed into the, into the national army, uh, and the negotiations of that were an enormous source of conflict up until after the first constitutional assembly collapsed, which we'll talk, I'll talk about in a moment. Um, after very, very difficult negotiations, political parties um, in the government agreed to integrate 6,500 former combatants um, from the Maoist side into the army. Uh, when the process started, only 1,400 were accepted into, um, into the army and most of those were in non-officer positions. Only 71 were in officer positions. Um, 
the, this, this, I suppose, raises a really big question about what happened to all the others. And I think it, it highlights that the numbers were actually much lower um, than was initially reported during that uh, registration process. Um, there's, one of the other reasons that most soldiers didn't actually decide to be integrated into the army is that the compensation packages for reintegration into civilian life were very high. They could get 7,000 US dollars um, if they opted for that, which was much higher than the salaries that they'd receive if they um, joined the army. Uh, and it was certainly enough to live off for a number of years. Um, the soldiers started coming out of the cantonments two years ago, uh, and that $7,000 has pretty much covered their costs of life up until now, so about two, two and a half years later. Um, that money is now running out, which is causing enormous problems because the Nepali uh, economy is certainly not strong and it doesn't have the capacity to absorb all of these ex-combatants. Um, and unemployment rates are incredibly high. In addition to that, the reintegration packages were largely cash benefits. They weren't backed up with appropriate training um, campaigns. Uh, soldiers could opt for training programs, but they got trained in things like T-rolling, um, which is not uh, the most appropriate, um, well, there's, there's not a lot of jobs in that area, basically. There were more appropriate training programs that they could have been given. In addition to that, um, there are a lot of young soldiers who joined when they were kids who as a result missed out on education completely uh, and they haven't been able to um, really catch up on any of that education um, and a lot of the social support programs that they're working um, on uh, at the moment have those young people saying that they don't know what to do with their lives they're at a loss about what what their purpose is which is quite alarming um, really there were also particular difficulties for the women who chose the reintegration packages. A lot of them weren't uh, really let back into their communities, or not, not let back in. There were challenges for them to join their communities. There was an assumption that they would go back to their traditional gender roles if they were um, able to go back into their communities, but a lot of communities resisted them coming back. They saw them as loose women who may have gone out and had relationships with men during their time in the army, and so they weren't really welcome back or weren't able to get married, start families, and so on afterwards. Families is another interesting issue here for reintegration because um, a lot of the partnerships that began during the war when um, men and women within the Maoist army got married, had children, um, have started to collapse within a couple of years of those um, the combatants leaving the cantonments. Uh, and there is quite a lot of, particularly for women, there are a lot of challenges of being single mums who used to be ex-combatants, who haven't really got an opportunity um, or the capacity to work and earn money independently, an enormous amount of discrimination, particularly against the women who are now trying to find a way to live. One other issue that wasn't dealt with at all in that reintegration program was land, which was a major issue during the conflict. Um, and it really is crucial to surviving in Nepal. People without land are very vulnerable. A lot of combatants banded together in small groups to purchase land that they could then um, uh, work and live off. Um, but they tended to only be able to afford the cheap land, which was not particularly arable, um, not particularly fertile, and often in the more fragile areas of the countries. And so there's almost been a ghettoization of those ex-combatants in areas, um, which has contributed to the fragility and also contributed to the vulnerability of those individuals. Uh, Land reform has been a central issue in the process, um, not as a result of that, but sort of running mm. alongside this. The Maoists have so far refused to hand back any of the land that they confiscated during the war to the original owners. Um, so there is an issue that there's a land shortage and there's conflict over who actually should have access to land and who the land actually belongs to, um, which is adding another dimension to this. So I think it's clear from this that the, the disarmament demobilisation program has had quite varying effects. On the one hand, it was successful. It certainly prevented um, violence in the lead up to the, well, and during the elections and in the political processes, but it's left some fairly large unresolved issues around reintegration um, of ex-combatants and their role in the post-war society. The second main issue I wanted to talk about was around the constituent assembly um, and constitutional development. So the transition back to a multi-party democracy after the peace process has been really difficult. And in, in a lot of ways, I think it's a continuation of that very tumultuous um, political process that's been going in, on in Nepal and that's characterised um, Nepali politics for many decades. The first elections in 2008 went remarkably smoothly for a country that had just recently emerged from a civil war and where there was still two armed armies um, in existence. Uh, 
That was partly because the UN only had a small number of observers, but had a very visible presence across the country. So people in far-flung villages felt that there was monitoring going on and that they could trust the process because the UN was visible and it seemed to be operating fairly well. Um, the elections led to a landslide win for the Maoists, uh, which came as an enormous surprise to the uh, Seven Party Alliance, who assumed that they would regain power as they had in the, uh, as they had in the past. One of the major factors that contributed to that was that they were seen to be the harbingers of political change. And a lot of people in the country, um, as I said, had been politicised by the war and were quite disenchanted by the way the political parties had managed um, their political program uh, in the 90s in that democratic interlude. The elections rebalanced power away from the Kathmandu elite. So one third of the people who were elected to the constituent assembly were either women or from marginalised groups, which was enormous compared to how it looked in the past. That said, um, the challenges of governance in the post-war system have been fairly much reminiscent of the same challenges in the 90s and then 50s before that. Uh, the individuals, the parties have been caught up in power sharing negotiations and arrangements. Um, there have been six prime ministers uh, over the course of only two electoral cycles in the country, um, parties split and re-split and realign fairly quickly. Um, one of the most alarming forms of that splitting and re-splitting is that the Maoists um, have split uh, between the, the larger party, which is still aligned with the leaders, um, and much smaller groups who say that those leaders have abandoned the struggle um, and that they need to return to much more hardline tactics and potentially um, uh, take up violence again to fight the war that they um, they obviously didn't win if the politicians have just been sucked into the regular forms of political power. Um, in addition to that, there's been, even though the constituent assembly is operating, um, a lot of members don't show up regularly, attendance is incredibly low, uh, and the processes are largely driven by the elite in the constituent assembly. So all essential negotiations still tend to happen behind closed doors by the top leaders. Um, that's frustrated the mid-level leaders, uh, they really want to be included and that exclusion is causing tension within parties as well. Um, in many ways, I think this is a reversion to what's considered the old model of the pre-war constituent assembly. Uh, it's, it's not consultative, it's unable to come to agreements on the constitution, which is the main task that the constituent assembly um, was supposed to do. And I think it's important here to note that it was the failure, or it was the constitutional negotiations in 1996 that actually pushed the Maoists to the point of taking up the war. So this is a big issue. I think it's a real risk um, to write off the constitution as an issue that maybe won't cause conflict. The main obstacle um, to agreeing on a constitution is the question of how the country will be split up. Um, it's been agreed that it will be a federal system. The question is whether federalism will be along ethnic lines or along regional lines. Uh, and the Maoists want it to be along ethnic lines in order to ensure the representation and the enfranchisement of minorities who've traditionally been disenfranchised. Um, the, there are a lot of people within Nepal, particularly within the political parties, who blame the international community for this conflict. They say uh, federalism wasn't mentioned in the peace agreement. Uh, it only came in later and it was the international community that brought this idea here from elsewhere. That's not actually the case. Uh, it was pushed into the interim constitution by the Madeshi movement because the Madeshi movement wanted to see greater representation of the, um, the ethnic groups that had been marginalised up until that point. It had always also been a key demand of the Maoists along with secularism, which is another issue that um, politicians within Nepal tend to blame on the international community for bringing in um, to this process. Uh, and I think that trend of blaming the international community for bringing in the points of conflict um, is quite uh, unhelpful. And I, th I think it's also quite telling about the role that the international community played, which I'll get to in a moment. The, one of the big issues with ethnic-based federalism is that there is an enormous amount of fear. When I was there, people thought that uh, if they ended up in an area that was named for a different ethnic group, um, they would have to leave and join the region that's named for their ethnic group. That's a real problem in Nepal because even in the areas where one ethnic group is a majority, it's never got more than 50%. So the ethnic groups are actually um, spread across the country uh, fairly diffusely. Um, conflict over this issue 
meant that the constitution wasn't promulgated by the first constitutional assembly in 2012. And it was the question of federalism and the fear that the, a lot of people had over what sort of federalism was going to be agreed to that led to widespread protests in the lead up to the deadline for the constitution. Um, that violence took on an ethnic dimension for the first time, which is probably fairly unsurprising given that the, the question was about ethnic federalism. But up until that point, the conflict in Nepal hadn't happened along ethnic lines. And this is quite an alarming trend um, in the development of the conflict and the political narratives of the conflict. One thing that happened during that period was that the Maoists shut down the west of the country completely in protest at the potential for um, the constitution not to be passed. Uh, they shut down airports, food supplies, ambulances couldn't operate. A lot of people died. And there are people who say that this was actually more extreme than anything that they did during the People's War. And for that sort of extreme action to be now operating in the context of the Constitutional Assembly and the political process raises questions about how we make sense of the non-violent or violent boundary um, of politics in those arenas. Um, the Constitutional Assembly collapsed after not uh, passing or not, not revealing a, um, a constitution. Uh, there's some speculation that they decided against releasing a constitution because they knew that it would cause violence and that they thought by holding it off they might actually be able to stop violence breaking out. The problem is that the, the issue still hasn't been resolved um, uh, and a second deadline actually passed earlier this year when politicians uh, ended up throwing chairs at each other, chairs and microphones. The pictures that came out of the, um, the parliament were quite uh, unusual for scenes within a parliament. Um, and at that point, the Maoists again threatened uh, a return to war if they didn't, uh, if the rest of the parties tried to push through an agreement that they didn't agree with, that they didn't consent to. What happened in the 2013 elections um, was that there was a swing against the Maoists. So the Maoists are actually less powerful than they were in the aftermath of the civil war. There's a lot of question about why that is. Um, the major political parties certainly took that as a rejection of the Maoist agenda and the transformational agenda in the peace process. And they've pursued a much more conservative agenda, which looks more like taking Nepal back to the way things looked in the 1990s. Um, I'm not sure that's the case. I think uh, it's actually probably more that a lot of people just saw the Maoists as having joined the political class and felt um, abandoned by the group that they thought would actually bring them justice and rights and change. Um, there is some speculation that there's going to be a swing back, some sort of correction back towards the left in the next round of elections, but that's still yet to be seen. In any case, like I said, the, these, are, these negotiations haven't become any more peaceful. Um, they haven't got any closer to being resolved, although a draft constitution was released early July. Um, this issue still remains a really big point of disagreement. One of the big questions that people within Nepal are coming to at the moment is that if the constitution is increasingly looking like the constitution of 1990, what was the point of the war? And was it just... Um, a way for the Maoist leaders to elbow their way into the political elite rather than to actually pursue those political, social and economic transformational um, processes or goals that they had. And I think that that points to one of the major challenges in post-war Nepal, which is that political culture has remained highly conflictual, it's very antagonistic, and there's been very little commitment amongst the parties to seek compromise in pursuit of better outcomes for the majority of the population. Um, that said, I, I can't be too negative about the constitutional process because a, there hasn't been a return to war for starters. The groups have kept coming back to the parliament to negotiate on these issues and there have been a number of really big wins. A lot of the big issues have been solved. Um, the monarchy was dissolved. Uh, Nepal's become a republic. Democratic principles around the separation of powers have been agreed to at first. The Maoists didn't want a separation of powers. They wanted the judiciary to be um, uh, subject to the, uh, the authority of the government. So there have been some major wins um, during this process and the, the, the problem, the big issue is about federalism and then there are some smaller technical issues, you know, will it be a first past the post or a proportional representative system or so on. And I think in some ways that is a, that's a really positive um, element to this whole process. Uh, there's also been another interesting outcome which is that it's caused a lot of people to, to grapple with the question of what Nepal actually is, regular people, people who were politicised by the war and young people. Um, have been exposed to discussions about the history of Nepal and its politics in a way that generations before this current generation really haven't been, um, which is 
a really positive thing, I think. So just briefly, the third main issue, um, third main challenge to this process is about transitional justice, uh, which just hasn't happened in Nepal at all. Uh, during the war, like I said, a lot of people were killed. Many of them were civilians. Many of them were targeted directly by the Maoists, um, but actually more targeted directly by the army. Um, so the Maoists killed alleged informants. They killed uh, class enemies. They carried out indiscriminate, some indiscriminate attacks on civilians, like when they bombed buses. Um, and the army massacred civilians who were in areas under Maoist control or suspected of supporting the Maoists. They used a policy of secret detentions and extrajudicial killings very liberally. Um, they used torture. Uh, and many thousands of people went missing. In fact, uh, there are still about 1,500 people missing in Nepal today, counted as missing, disappeared, and most of them are presumed to have been killed while in state custody. Um, the Constituent Assembly finally passed a transitional justice law early last year after years and years of negotiations and an enormous amount of lobbying from the international community and civil society. Um, that transitional justice law is not a good law in terms of the outcomes of transitional justice. And there's been a lot of resistance by human rights activists within Nepal to this law. Um, elements in, like the inclusion of amnesties have been ruled illegal by the Supreme Court a number of times already, but they've continued to be included and they finally passed in this bill. There is, um, uh, there is a, court, a, a case uh, with the Supreme Court on that issue at the moment, and it's expected to be struck down again. Um, there are some, there's a lot of concern that these commissions, the um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the Commission to Investigate Disappearances are not adequately independent, that they'll actually just um, do what the government asks them to do and that they are too limited in their purview, uh, which has caused a lot of anguish, I think, for victims um, groups and victims advocates who'd actually like to see a, a much more... Um, sort of a deeper engagement with the experiences of victims and holding people accountable for those crimes. In addition, uh, one quite alarming thing is that these commissions have the right to mandate forced reconciliations between victims and perpetrators, which uh, could be quite a source of conflict and certainly doesn't put victims' rights above the rights of the perpetrators. It sort of sees um, reconciliation as something that needs to happen for a political outcome and that it, it it seems to say that victims just have to put aside their grievances and move forward towards peace and that if they're going to hold on to grievances, they're responsible for the continuation of the conflict um, in the country. That legislation uh, has been ruled against in the past. It's still in the current legislation and again, there's a challenge against it. So it's something to see uh, what happens. The biggest problem about this whole process is that the people who run Nepal are pretty much the people who ran the war at the moment. Uh, there's not a lot of difference between those two groups. All of the major parties um, have, are committed to providing impunity, um, sorry, immunity for perpetrators. No one's been punished for wartime atrocities. And this is consistent with the impunity with which Nepal's rulers have conducted themselves in general. There's been a real lack of justice for human rights abuses. Um, there's no accountability for the gross misuse of national resources. There's an enormous amount of corruption. Um, and their governments of all stripes have failed to rule in the public interest, which is a real issue at the moment. And in the meantime, the army has come through this entire process unreformed, despite being responsible for an enormous amount of human rights abuses. Uh, it, people speak less publicly now against the army than they have in the past, which is also a trend which is a little bit alarming in the context of the, uh, the atrocious human rights record that that army has and still maintains. So I think what these accounts of the security governance and justice transitions highlight is the way the politics of inclusion and exclusion have continued to operate in Nepal um, in the aftermath of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement. Um, despite the early libertarian feeling after the peace agreement, despite the sense that power is being redistributed away from the elite, the opposite actually seems to have happened. The power has been reconcentrated in the hands of the Kathmandu elite, um, which the Maoist leaders have now joined. Uh, the majority of Nepalese still remain disenfranchised from that system um, and from meaningful political engagement. Essentially, I think the lines of marginalisation have been redrawn. Um, and there are new levels of exclusion that have been established rather than uh, eliminated. In the new draft constitution um, that was released in July, women have almost no rights. They've got no property rights. They don't have um, 
the right to pass on citizenship to their children. They don't have you know, a whole range of rights that we would consider important to address the traditional marginalisation of women within that country. Um, and the same goes for a number of minorities. One of the big criticisms of the peace process is that the international community pushed the issue of inclusion um, and the issue of identity, identity into the peace process and Nepal wasn't ready for it. Certainly in the early stages of the process, Ian Martin paid a lot of attention to uh, the Madeshi groups uh, who are very small um, and major parties saw that as unfair and I think there's been a backlash against those groups and against the, um, the political uh, campaigning of those groups as a result of this sense that it was unfair that they had such an ear of the international community in those early years. Um, it's quite interesting that the international community in the last few years has moved away from the transformational agenda. They're not talking about inclusion or exclusion very much anymore. They're not talking about conflict anymore. Um, in a lot of ways, I think the donors have tired of the peace process and what they're refocusing on is economic development in the country. Um, so the Nepal Peace uh, Transition Fund, Peace Trust Fund, sorry, has, is being closed probably about two or three years earlier then it ought to be closed given the continued existence of these sources of conflict. Part of a shift to the development focus um, is also because there's a lack of open violence in the streets. Generally, you know, if you look at what's going on in Nepal, you wouldn't think that it's still a conflict country. Um, and it's difficult for the donors to sell, you know, conflict, uh, conflict prevention work in that context when people from their home communities look at Nepal and travel to Nepal and see it as a largely um, sweet, peaceful country high in the, uh, in the mountains. India and China are also very much pushing the narrative that the peace process is over. Uh, they are working with the government um, quite closely to develop quite large infrastructure projects um, and to invest quite heavily in those projects. Uh, and they don't want the focus on peace building or on conflict um, to remain in the country. There is a significant risk that if, develop, if, if this development is done in a way that's not conflict sensitive, the fractures that still exist in the society might flare up again and might be the source of further conflict. Um, in fact, uh, I haven't done research on this because the, uh, sorry, first-hand research on this because the earthquake happened after I left Nepal. Um, but the accounts that I've heard from people working in Nepal is that the way the relief uh, supplies were distributed in the aftermath of the conflict has been along um, very divided lines uh, and along the classic lines which is that uh, village leaders were prioritizing people who were either from their own ethnic group or from their own political party and that they weren't giving adequate support particularly to the uh, the lower castes even though caste is now outlawed but people who were from the lower castes um, they weren't giving adequate resources to women or women-headed households um, and they certainly weren't giving it to people who opposed them politically or who were aligned with other political parties, uh, which is a real challenge. I think what all of this suggests is that the biggest issue, and certainly my conclusion, is that the biggest issue undermining the consolidation of peace is that political culture hasn't shifted significantly in Nepal. It's remained quite a constant. Um, and like I said earlier, it remains characterised by antagonism and mistrust between the parties. It also remains characterised by the primacy of personalised politics over collective politics and uh, sort of the pursuit of collective goods. That is linked to the fact that Nepal is a state that actually has very strong institutions, which is unlike most other states that are emerging from civil war. It has, I, I think, my analysis is that those institutions have pulled the new actors into a certain way of behaving. Um, they've sort of normalised a certain form of political culture. One indication of that, I think, is the ease with which the Maoist leaders um, and other politicians have adopted the behaviours of the Kathmandu elite that they used to criticise um, for so long. So, for instance, Prachanda, the former leader of the Maoist um, movement, is now one of Nepal's wealthiest men. He owns the only supermarket chain in the country and also Nepal Gas. Um, that, there, there's been an enormous widening of the gap between the small number of elite from the Maoist movement um, who are now in these positions where they can enrich themselves uh, and the majority of their former soldiers um, and their supporters who remain poor, impoverished and for whom life hasn't really changed much at all um, uh, since before the war. 
I think another indication of this is the intense politicisation of all politics, which has made good governance in the country nearly impossible. The international community worked with the Nepali government to set up village development councils, local peace committees, which had very strict quotas to ensure the inclusion of many groups, including women and minorities and the untouchable castes, um, so that they could participate in processes of deciding what their community needed. Um, that hasn't been particularly successful on paper. You know, it looks like there's that inclusivity. What I heard is that in practice, women and um, the untouchables are not actually allowed to eat at the same table as their counterparts on the committee. They're not allowed to touch the same food. You know, they're very much excluded. Um, and that then means that they don't feel comfortable raising issues or actually speaking um, at the table. It's also meant that in any government context um, or any decision-making context, party allegiance comes first and people are identified primarily with their parties and they, they run with their party lines rather than participating in decision, collective decision-making processes. Um, there's an enormous amount of patronage and uh, sort of the sapping of state resources as a result of that as well. The political class is perceived as very hungry for power. Uh, they've often been described as roosters fighting for space. Um, in, a, in large part, they've abandoned the transformational agenda of the war. They've re-established the old norm of politics. And I think part of what we've seen is that um, this is a, a normalization process back to the earlier ways of operating. I think that's been facilitated by the deep class divisions and caste divisions in the country um, and the fatalism with which a lot of Nepalis understand their place in the country, in their country and in the world more generally. Um, so even though on the one hand there's been a real increase in political consciousness as a result of the People's War, on the other hand there's still a sense that there are two sorts of people in Nepal. There are the Salomanji, who are the farmers, the peasants, they're not overly concerned with politics because they don't think they can have much of an influence on it, and they're also occupied with subsistence and survival. Uh, and there are the Tulumanji, who are the decision makers, who in the past have been understood as designated by God to those positions. Um, and they are drawn from the larger, uh, from the higher castes, the ruling castes. Local tradition in Nepal holds that fate is written on the forehead of children six days after they're born. And that has sort of imbued a sense of fatalism in the Nepali community that you don't have a lot of opportunity to change things, that your engagement in politics, you know, it's sort of pointless because your fate's already been written on your forehead and there's not much you can, you can do to actually change your place in the world or the country more broadly. And this is quite a shift back. The Maoists really challenged um, this during the war. They had a very transformative liberation discourse that they used to really challenge this. But because nothing has actually been done to change the situation of the vast majority of their supporters, they've slipped back into the same forms of life, the same challenges um, and so on. They've also slipped back into that way of thinking about things. So just to conclude, bringing this back to the international community, how has the international community contributed to this? On the one hand, I think that um, by taking the light footprint approach, the international community allowed the local actors to take ownership of this process. And that was really positive in the early years. But um, they also took a very technocratic approach to some of the inclusion um, and sort of the structure of politics by imposing quotas and so on without looking beyond that at how power was still operating or how power was being divided amongst the different groups in the country. Um, they haven't pushed for certain issues to remain on the table in the peace process. They're not talking about marginalisation, like I said earlier, or exclusion. Um, they're not talking about conflict-sensitive programming anymore, even when they're talking about development programming. Um, these issues have been pushed to the side. And instead, there's been a focus on uh, quite depoliticised responses. So I was surprised by the number of organisations I met with who are doing community mediation as their only conflict programming um, in Nepal at the moment. And that is literally, a, well, it's a deeply personal level form of mediation. It's mediating conflicts within families, um, domestic violence issues, conflicts between mother-in-laws and their daughter-in-laws. Um, it's mediating very small scale issues around land within communities or around access to resources. That, those issues are not necessarily linked to the big picture conflict that is still animating a lot of the, the, the national politics in Nepal. And I think that it really illustrates the depoliticisation of the international community's um, engagement in Nepal. I think that uh, the, the big challenge facing Nepal is that 
it it's stuck in one of or it's moving towards being stuck in one of these neither war nor peace situations. There's certainly not going to be another major war in Nepal. There is no appetite from the vast majority of Nepalis to rearm. Um, and it would be very difficult for a group like the Maoists to manage to get such mass mobilization as they did during the People's War. That said, everyone predicts more conflict. They just predict it at the micro level. Um, certainly, there is an assumption that conflict will break out when a constitution is passed. If there's a federal uh, system along ethnic lines, there'll be conflict. If it's federal along regional lines, there'll be conflict. You know, no matter what, there's a sense that there will be conflict um, amongst these communities. In addition to that, there's growing criminality. Um, and some of the criminal groups, particularly in the south, are overlapping with the areas of deep political um, uh, conflict or marginalisation, particularly in the Madeshi region. So just earlier this week or over the weekend, um, there was violence in the Madeshi region um, and in other regions down south. Uh, groups are calling for secession. Um, there have been reprisal attacks that have happened along ethnic lines. Um, and there's evidence uh, from before this that criminal groups are bringing weapons in from India, that there's much more trafficking of weapons and people going on, which creates sort of a, a situation of instability um, that those political issues might really um, uh, further destabilise. The big question that leaves Nepal with, and I think a lot of Nepalis are grappling with this at the moment, is what was the purpose of the war? Was it just that the Maoist leaders wanted to get into positions of power and wanted to get to a point that they could also um, uh, use those positions of power to extract wealth um, from the country? Uh, it may be the case. Um, it may be that there have been uh, uh, what's the word? Um, that they've just been absorbed into the way of working. You know, that they've been. Um, desensitized to some of their former critiques around the political culture. Um, there is a peace dividend in Nepal at the moment, which I think is a really promising thing. Uh, it exists particularly in the way the country's resources are going to be developed and the infrastructure projects that are likely to be developed with the assistance of India and Nepal. It's not necessarily stable though. And there is certainly still a very extractive relationship between the Nepali government and the international community whereby the international community is still funneling money in, but it doesn't actually have a lot of, um, much of a role or much capacity to ensure that that money is being used um, in a way that uh, supports the transformational agenda, which I think still underpins the success of the peace process. I might leave it there for now. I hope that that's been um, a useful discussion. <laughs>